I'd like you to stand for the reading of God's word. First Peter. If you are new to West Hills, what we generally do here is study through a book of the Bible. Sometimes we have topical studies, but even those are going to be driven by a primary passage of Scripture. Right now we're in a series of messages that we just started two weeks ago um, in Peter's little first epistle. And so this morning we're in verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Please be seated. So this morning in our study of 1 Peter, we come across one of the biggest paradoxes of the Christian life. And that is the simultaneous coexistence in the life of a believer of both joy and grief. A deep, abiding spirit of abundant joy, while at the same time experiencing the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that one endures in life due to the various circumstances that come our way, and in particular, those circumstances that come our way as a result of our faith, trials. Peter's going to teach us about how our faith gets tested this morning. And why that's actually a really, really good thing that you want to happen in your life. You want the tests that are going to strengthen and mature and develop your faith. But he sets it up by juxtaposing, setting side by side joy and grief. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. And so he's telling us that Christians are inherently both rejoicers and grievers at the same time. That both joy and sorrow are integral to the Christian experience. And I would just simply ask here at the outset, has that been your experience? Have you experienced both, and sometimes simultaneously, in a way that you can't really explain or describe to someone who doesn't understand how that works? That seems to have been the reality for that great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. You read the stories of the Christian martyrs. You read the stories of Christians today in different parts of the world who experience deep, deep joy in the midst of tremendous sorrow and suffering. Peter says, in this you rejoice. And you stop there and you say, in what, Peter? In what do we rejoice? Well, it's that which we looked at last week. Let's read it again. Last week's message came from verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so verses 3 through 5 tell us there is no greater joy than the joy of knowing the reality of those verses for you personally. Where you read those verses and you feel the passion that Peter had in his heart when he wrote those words, and in your spirit you say, yes, yes, that's true of me. That's my reality. Peter says, in this you find your supreme joy. Nothing can take this joy away from you. It is to those truths that you should find yourself returning again and again and again. These are what will recalibrate your compass. Verses 3 through 5 will, will anchor your soul in the midst of the hurricanes of life. These are what will fill you with joy inexpressible, Peter says. Think about it, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would do these things for you and me. That he would cause you to be born again when you were spiritually lifeless. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins, that he would give to you a promised inheritance. That he would keep that inheritance for you in heaven until the day comes when you can take possession of it. And in the interim time, between now and then, that he would promise to guard you, protect you, watch over you, protecting you from anything and everything that would seek to destroy you. Peter says, in this you rejoice. It's like, it's like this huge gift box and inside the box are all these amazingly wonderful gifts. Every one of them is incredible. But all of them combined, new birth, new life, new hope, resurrection power, and inheritance, God guarding, you, God guarding you for your salvation. And all of that because he's a God of mercy. You see, friends, we make the mistake of looking for joy in all the wrong boxes. We look for joy in the, the good life. We look for joy in the life of comfort and ease. We look for joy in riches and houses and lands. And we look for joy in the healthy life. We look for joy in a life free of sickness and cancer and dementia. We look for joy in the perfect marriage. We look for joy in having children who perform well, who are successful, who achieve prosperity when they, when they become adults. We look for true and lasting joy in all the places that the rest of the world looks for joy. In all the wrong boxes. And any of all of those things can be taken from you in the blink of an eye. And when we do this, we inadvertently turn God's good gifts into idols. We're looking to that to satisfy us. Looking for things that will take the place that is reserved only for God. And so Peter says, Christians, here's where you are to rejoice. In these things, find your joy. Recalibrate your soul daily 
in the things of what God has done for you in Christ and what he promises to do for you. You see, your circumstances are going to change. You're going to have really great days and you're going to have really terrible, horrible days. You're going to be on the top of a mountain and you're going to be in the darkest, deepest valley. And wherever you happen to find yourself, Peter would say, this is where you find your joy. But then in the very same sentence, he tells us that our rejoicing will be intermingled with grieving, with sorrow and pain and trials. And the merging of these two, rejoicing and grieving, is due to the nature of faith itself. Faith generates both. Now, Peter's going to tell us how your faith gets tested by God and to what end. What is the... What is the end game? What is the end result of your faith being tested? This whole section is really about faith. Verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith. Verse 9, the outcome of your faith. Now he just told us in the verses from last week that at the present time you are being guarded through faith. You are being guarded through through faith. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that faith is of tremendous importance in your life. Faith is no small thing. We know that faith itself is a gift, a grace extended to us by God. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so your faith today is a grace gift from God. And we know just how valuable and rare faith is because there are so many people who don't have faith. So many people who don't believe the way you believe. You say, why do I have faith in God? Why do I believe in Jesus? Why do I believe the gospel and the person standing next to me in line at Schnucks doesn't? It's a grace gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. And now, it is this very same faith that God presently uses in your life to guard you. Verse 5. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. So think about it. If I am guarded through faith, then that faith is of tremendous importance in my life. It's like you've been given an impregnable Jedi force shield that is able to guard you from all those things that might assail you from the dark side. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, faith is a shield. It says, take up the shield of your faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Flaming darts, arrows dipped in pitch and then lit on fire and then shot is the imagery from the first century. And so the shield is for the purpose of fending off the flaming darts, the purpose of fending off attacks, stopping the arrows from penetrating. Faith is the Kevlar vest of the Christian life. Friends, faith will guard you from devastating doubts, paralyzing fear, 
Faith will guard you from the devil's lies and accusations and deceptions. Faith will guard you from the world's allurements, from your own fleshly temptations. Faith will guard you from self-recrimination and condemnation. So Peter here is going to tell us this morning that God himself is committed to developing and maturing and strengthening your faith, which he has planted within you, and that he will oftentimes accomplish that through the means of a trial. Say, well then, Gary, what exactly is it that's being tested when you say your faith is going to be tested? What does that include? I think we need to have a full-orbed understanding of what it means to believe in God. It's not just cognitive, cognitive agreement with doctrine. The faith that the Bible talks about is an all-encompassing, all-invading, all-pervasive work in your life of God. Verses in the Old Testament that I think say it so well in Deuteronomy chapter 10 Here's the way the Lord spelled it out for the Israelites as to what it meant to believe in him. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. And so it's all right there. Fear. Walk, love, serve, keep. That's what it means to have faith in God. It means to fear God, to reverence God. It means to walk, to be submitted to his ways. It means to love him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You'll have no other gods. You'll love God. It means to serve, serve us, a life of service to God. You serve the Lord with your days. You serve the Lord with your vocation. You serve the Lord with your hobbies and your pastimes. You serve the Lord as a husband or a wife, as a parent. You serve the Lord in the flow of everyday life. And then keep, keep the commandments. That's obedience. You see, when God tests faith, I think he's going to test all of those things. I think he wants to test all of those things in my life. Now, let me show you what Peter tells us about the tests of faith in the life of a believer. It looks like a really long sermon. It's not. First of all, Peter tells us that these tests are going to be perennial. Perennial, continual, never-ending. They come back year after year. At our cottage up north, I have lots of perennials that I've planted over the past several years. <clears throat> they come back year after year. That's what I like about them. This summer, I added a few more. They'll come back next year. The perennials I planted two years ago are bigger and fuller than the ones that I just planted. They just keep coming back. See, trials and tests are perennial. It's all in that little word, now. Though now. And every day you read this, read that verse, it's now. 
though now. Now and now and now and now. Trials and tests are now. Trials and tests are perennial. We probably wish, they were, we wish that they were annuals, here for a short season and then gone. But they're not. They're perennial. They are now today, and tomorrow they will be now, and in six weeks they will be now. You see, we sometimes act as if we're surprised when a trial comes our way. Peter will come back to this, actually, when we get to chapter 4, where he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Well, this is strange. Why is this happening to me? I'm a Christian. I went through a trial last year. My faith got tested pretty significantly when I lost my job. When my husband, my husband had cancer. When I had that miscarriage, when my wife left me, when I had a falling out with one of my kids, when I went through that desert experience with my faith, when I was taking care of my ailing parents, I went through a trial. No, they're perennial. They come year after year. So Peter says, don't be surprised. For the Christian, and you've got to get this, for the Christian, these things aren't just random, insignificant circumstances. The Bible's very clear that they come from the loving and caring hand of a very personal, very engaged Heavenly Father who is perpetually, perennially taking stock of the faith of His sons and His daughters and acting to perfect that faith. And yes, he is lovingly, sovereignly willing to use trials to get that accomplished. Because he knows what is for the very, very best of his kids. Secondly, they're temporal. Though now for a little while. Say, well, Pastor Gary, how long is a little while? It's relative, isn't it? Wash up for dinner, kids, because we're going to eat in just a little while. That's a few minutes, right? The doctor will be with you in just a little while. It's an hour. I've been having these dizzy spells for a little while, several days. It's been a while since we've seen each other, months. You see, a little while is relative. And so what's a little while to God? Well, in his second epistle, Peter tells us that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, and so with the Lord, a thousand years is a little while. You say, well, then, Pastor Gary, what's a little while when God is testing his people? Well, we know that the Israelites wandered in the desert for a little while, 40 years, In Isaiah 54, the Lord told the people of Israel, For a brief moment I deserted you. For a moment I hid my face from you. It's a reference to their captivity, which lasted for 70 years. And say, well then, could a little while actually be an entire lifetime? Sure. In fact, I think it is. Peter probably had the same perspective as that of James who wrote, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, a little while, and then vanishes. 
And as for the trials and afflictions that we face in this life, the Apostle Paul put them into wonderful perspective when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. You can't compare that to this. And so even a few decades, friends, brothers and sisters, even a lifetime that is filled with now and now and now and now and now is just a little while in comparison to eternity. Thirdly, they're essential. Though now, for a little while, if necessary. And so apparently there are times in our lives when these tests and trials are necessary. They're essential. They play an essential role in what your loving Heavenly Father is wanting to accomplish in the life of His son or His daughter. And you ask the question, well then, who gets to decide if it's necessary? There's only one that I know that I can trust with that word. And that's God. God in his wisdom knows what's necessary in the lives of his children. I can trust him with that. He knows if it's necessary. He knows if it'll be good for you. Fourthly, they're painful. It says you've been grieved. In this you rejoice, though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by these trials. They're painful. They're painful. You've suffered. See, Peter is acknowledging with a pastor's heart that the trials and the afflictions that come into the lives of the people of God can be filled with tremendous pain and suffering. He isn't just talking about physical suffering. I think he's including mental anguish, sadness of heart, disappointment, frustration, confusion, sorrow, anxiety, worry. There are lots of things in this life that can cause us to grieve. And I would also say that Peter does not expect, nor is he telling those to whom he is writing, that this pain and grief is of no consequence. That they should simply brush it aside and act as if everything is happy and wonderful when it's not. See, friends, please hear me on this. I think we're pretty good with this, but I think we all always need reminders. It is not more spiritual for you to act or pretend as if everything is okay when it's not. It is not more spiritual for you to smile and quote a Bible verse and ignore the fact that you are really, really hurting. Where did we get the notion that the Christian life is supposed to give the aura of a happy, pain-free existence? Where did that come from? It comes from the cults. That's where it comes from. We got it from a false understanding of joy. You see, for the Christian, joy and grief can hold hands with each other. They, they do. Where did we adopt the sick idea that suffering is to be done with a smile instead of with anguish? I know the Bible says that we can rejoice in our suffering, but our rejoicing comes from things that are deep. Rejoicing comes from things that are deep, not superficial. 
Genuine rejoicing for the Christian is to be experienced in the presence of honest suffering, grief, and sorrow over the brokenness of my life, over the brokenness of relationships, over the disappointment and discouragement in your heart, in living in a fallen world. See, I don't believe that rejoicing means always smiling and quoting Bible verses and spouting Christian platitudes. When we gloss over the harsh realities of life, we do damage to the gospel. We think we're propping it up when in reality we're presenting a facade to the world that's afraid to be truthful and honest about just how hard life can be and how desperately we need God. If everything is always hunky-dory, if you're always on top of your game, where is there room for God to step into your pain? Jesus did not smile from the cross. He did not brush away the agony with a platitude. Everything happens for a reason. It'll all work out for the best. God's in control. Jesus grieved. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you that honest with God? That you are able to say to him in the midst of your trial, I feel as if you've forsaken me. I feel all alone. I feel abandoned. Oh my God, come quickly. Those are the Psalms. And so Peter here is not telling you to to somehow brush your grief under the rug. And when you come to church, especially brush it under the rug. When we minimize it and sanitize it and Christianize it, we diminish the good news that we have a suffering Savior who weeps with us. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our afflictions. Now I would say it again. Cults diminish the reality of pain and grief and sorrow. They don't know what to do with it in their framework of thinking. Christ embraces us in our pain. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we need not only to weep with those who weep, but we need to allow others to weep with us. Trials are painful. Trials are painful. And I dare say, on any given Sunday, this is not a football illusion, on any given Sunday, there are brothers and sisters at West Hills who are grieving. And we need to embrace them and give them the freedom to grieve and the freedom to ourselves. Number five, trials are individual. Verse 6, by various trials. The word various means multicolored. It's like if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Ace Hardware or Menards. I don't want to leave anybody out. uh, um, And go to the paint section, hundreds of tints of shades of color, right? And you can't decide. You you had no idea there were 23, 23 tints of white. Trials come in various colors. Multicolored. Each one has its individual tint. 
And so there are physical trials and varieties of physical trials. There are financial trials, varieties of financial trials, some involving poverty and some involving prosperity. It's a test. What will you do with it? There are marital trials. What will you do when your marriage is suffering? And what will you do when your marriage is prospering? There are parenting trials. Private, public, family, mental trials, emotional trials, spiritual trials. Various. Number six, they're purposeful. It's just in those two little words in verse seven. So that. So that. Those two words serve as arrows pointing us in the direction, the right direction, in order to understand the purpose behind the trials. We're going to get to what's after the so that. But they're purposeful. When God is accomplishing something according to his purpose, he's working out a part of his perfect will for the lives of his children. And when it comes to our trials... John Piper says that the Lord designs our distresses. He designs our distresses. Now that doesn't mean that God delights in bringing pain and suffering into our lives. Don't misconstrue that. God does not do evil. Sometimes he's simply allowing for things to happen. His permissive will. Some of those things are evil. And he allows them to happen. At other times, he is intentionally orchestrating things to happen by divine design. Very specific to the assignment. There's something he wants to accomplish in your life. And he has set out to do it. Now when we're in the thick of it all, we sometimes can't discern which one's going on here. But what we do know is that God is always good. He is loving. He is wise. He is benevolent. And he will purposefully take circumstances of our lives and work them together for good. And so these various trials are purposeful in the lives of his people. Number seven, they're personal. Trials are very personal. I see that in the phrase... So that the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith, not the faith of West Hills, not the faith of everyone in your life group, not your wife's faith, not your husband's faith, not your best friend's faith, your faith. This is the intimate, highly personal nature of God in dealing with his children. I relate with each of our four children very individually. When I talk to Josh on the phone, it's different than when I talk to Aaron on the phone. When I'm playing a game with Jesse, it's different than when I play a game with Judd. I make it very personal. And you do too. We have a Heavenly Father who is who comes very near to his son or his daughter, his children, throughout the days of the week. He draws near to you because he wants wants the tested genuineness of 
your faith to shine. He's that personal. He knows exactly what it is that you need done to your faith. And what you need done to your faith is different from somebody else. What you need done to your faith this week, those of you who are married, what you need done to your faith this week, husbands, is different than what your wife's faith needs done to hers, and vice versa. And so you can, each, you can help each other in that. You can encourage each other in that. But you can't take what God is doing to your faith and foist it on your spouse or on your children. I spoke with someone in the lobby this morning just saying they're trusting what God is doing in, in her son's faith. Knowing that God is doing a good work and he will. Number eight, it is invaluable. These trials are invaluable. Verse seven, more precious than gold. And so in order to convey to his readers the value of possessing a faith that is getting tested, Peter likens it to the most valuable commodity at that time, gold. And of course, it's still considered extremely valuable. Now, you know the process of refining and purifying gold. It gets heated to ridiculous temperatures, and the dross or the impurities get separated from the gold itself, and they float to the top so that they can be removed, which makes the gold of even greater value than it was before it was heated to those high temperatures. Peter says that's what God is doing when he takes you through the fiery ordeal of a harsh trial. He is taking that which is of great value and making it of even greater value. He is purifying your faith in order to remove the impurities. And my faith has impurities and your faith has impurities. We have some of the same impurities in our faith that the Israelites had in theirs, don't we? They wanted to return to Egypt where they could eat onions and vegetables They wanted to go back to the old life. So do we. It's one of the impurities of faith. We tend to want to go backwards to old habits, old ways of living, old lifestyle routines, old ways of thinking. The Israelites complained and grumbled and murmured. So do we. They didn't want to submit to God's direction. Sometimes we struggle with that. It's an impurity. We can still have a tendency to trust other things in place of God, to set up idols, to to cast golden calves for ourselves. We can tend to have a stubborn heart like they did. We can tend to be stiff-necked like they were. We can tend to be very prideful people like they were. All of these are impurities. We can tend to disobey when God tells us, I want you to do this. We can tend to forget what God's done in our past. They forgot. It's an impurity of our faith. See, all these impurities. And so he allows us to go through trials so that the the dross can float to the top and be skimmed off the top. Because all of those things prevent us from experiencing the fullness, the fullness of trusting and delighting in and being totally satisfied in God. 
And then number nine, they are eternally consequential. These trials that you are presently enduring, out of curiosity, how many of you would say in the last six months you've endured some kind of a, not just, you, you can you really look at it and say, this has been, God has been testing a part of my faith in, in this area of my life sometime in the last six months. Something you've been going through where God's been testing your faith. Peter says you need to understand they are eternally consequential. So that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so you ask, Pastor Gary, what's the end game of all this? I mean, everything with purpose in life has an ending, some final conclusion. What's the final conclusion? What's the end result of all of these trials in this life for me as a believer? And Peter tells us, that the tested genuineness of your faith, the pure gold faith, may result in praise, glory, and honor. Your faith will ultimately result in praise, glory, and honor, says Peter. You say, to who? To you? To me? Praise, glory, and honor to you? No. To the one in whom we have placed our faith. To the author of your faith, to the finisher of your faith. Jesus, Christ, when he's revealed. And so the tests that you and I endure have eternal consequences. Now I'll say a little bit more about that in just a second, but but look ahead to verses 8 and 9. I love these verses. This is a couple of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I come back to these a lot. Because I think Peter is pointing to what he believes is the clearest evidence of living faith in the here and now. And that is in how it has completely transformed those who have faith. He says it so simply and so beautifully. It's like he says, he says, friends, think about it for a minute. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's like he's saying to them, think about this. You love someone you've never seen. You believe in someone that you can't see right now. And as a result of what's happened in your life, you have this ridiculously inexpressible level of joy inside of you that you have trouble explaining to other people. It's beyond words. And it can only be explained by the fact that you know in your heart of hearts that it is all true and that it is true of you, that the gospel is true, and it has transformed your life from the inside out. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice. Now, let's come back to that eternal consequence as we wrap up. What's the end game of all this? 
The end result of your faith and mine being tested and purified in 2017 and 2018 and now and now and now and now for a little while, for as long as that little while happens to last, what's the end game? Peter says it's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I have this mental picture. I think it's, hopefully it's accurate. I have this mental picture of the end of the age being this great, great worldwide harvest throughout all the ages. I think of the harvest of wheat fields and cornfields across the Midwest. I think of the harvest of the fruit orchards and the vineyards where I grew up in Michigan. This huge, huge ingathering of the faith of the saints throughout all time. Bushel baskets and and big wooden boxes and bins overflowing with the fruit of our faith and the faith of all those who have gone before us. The faith of the Old Testament patriarchs and matriarchs. The faith of believing remnant of Jews during the exile. The faith of the apostles and the prophets. The faith of the early church. The faith of the martyrs throughout the ages. The faith of the reformers. The faith of young children who have come to believe in Jesus because of a shoebox that they received from someone in America. The faith of faithful mom and dads. The faith of young people who went against the crowd in high school and college to follow Jesus. The faith of the faithful from every generation. People who loved the Lord, who served Him, who followed Him, who obeyed Him, who treasured Him. Above all else, and who kept their eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. And this great massive harvest is going to be brought before the King of Kings. And the result is going to be unimaginable cheering and applause with lots of well done, good, and faithful servants being heard. But the cheers and the tears of rejoicing are going to be directed at one. Before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess with the angels of heaven Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them will be heard saying with one voice to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever and forever. Amen. That's the outcome. That's the outcome of your faith. Let's pray. This morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, would you, would you pause right now? And simply praise and worship the author of your faith. The one who lovingly tests your faith. 
and the one who has promised to finish your faith. Give him thanks and praise. All praise, glory, and honor. If you're here this morning and you have never, you have never expressed faith in Christ who died for your sins, you've never expressed faith in the God who sent his Son to demonstrate his great, great love for you. You've never put your faith in Jesus who died and who rose again. This is your day. The Spirit of God is calling to you. Jesus is saying, believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me. Come follow me. Come learn what it means to love me and to be loved by me. Give me your life. Give me your sorrows. Give me your pain. Give your life to Christ today, I pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It has such a way of burning in our hearts. We open your word, and through it, you open our eyes to see wondrous things. We have beheld wondrous things from your law today, from your word today. Things that we delight in, things that amaze us, things that stir us, things that give us pause. Father, I would pray for any of my brothers or sisters who are here today who are especially experiencing a harsh trial. Great pain. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you weep with those who weep. Thank you that you put us into a family, into a body where we can grieve with those who grieve. Lord, may they experience your presence. May, they, may their joy go deep, deep beneath the waves and the wind May they know your peace. And Lord Jesus, we know that all of this is made, made possible because you gave your life for us. You died that we might have life. You laid down your life. You gave your blood to cover our sins. And so we give you thanks and praise as our Savior today. 
we honor you as we take the bread and the cup. We honor you. We remember you, and we will do so till the day we either leave this place or you return. Because you have told us to, and we do so joyfully. Thank you for your great love. You're a wonderful Savior. God's people agreed by saying, Amen.